You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The scripture tonight is from Mark 7, verses 24 to the end, uh, which is through 34. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he answered a house and did not want anyone to know that he could not be hidden. But immediately a a woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came down and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and he begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Oh, gosh. I'm not going to try it. That is, be opened. His ears and his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of the Lord. You can laugh at Brian, or you can sign up to read next week. Right? You know, if we do ask you, uh, where we're at right now is just whoever's, whoever's leading worship is who's been reading. And, and uh, if we do ask you, here's what I've found. This, is, uh, this isn't like a, I'm not saying anything to Brian. What I've found is if I don't know a word, do you like do the Bible app thing? If you listen, that dude with the best voice on the planet, he'll say every word perfect. And if he's wrong and you say what he says, no one's going to really disagree with you. <laughs> Right. Hey, good evening. My name is Ethan. I'm one of the pastors here at Free City. And uh, as, as you just heard read tonight, we do find ourselves in Mark chapter 7. And uh, if you do have your Bible, I'm going to ask that you just keep it open. If you don't, I think there's some Bibles in the pew back, pew backs in front of you. They are actually the same translation that, that we're looking at, but the words will also be on the screen. And uh, and I, I do pray that as we uh, even dig into it, I, Brian, I don't know if it was an accident or not, but when he said, man, she was a Gentile, and then he said, ooh. I hope that was contextualized, and I hope that we begin to feel that tonight, the reality of the Word of God. But let me pray for us as we get started this evening. Jesus, you do all things well. But Lord, even as... I pray that I I realize that I don't entirely believe it. And I don't think it's presumptuous to think or to assume that my unbelief is, is the only unbelief in this room, but I think that we all have it. We all hold to some degree question um, of your goodness. We hold in question whether or not we live up to your rules or 
whether you hold up and live up to our rules. And so, Lord, we acknowledge tonight where we exist, the toiling, the flip-flopping, the constant rewriting of rules and efforts to ask the veiled question that's within us, the one that keeps us up at night. Am I okay? Can I be right? So Holy Spirit, would you quicken our understanding of that which we perhaps feel and live in but have been unable to put into words and and that being our need. Would you fill this space tonight? As we've sang and we've requested through melody, would you fill this place tonight? Would you awaken our hearts? Would you confront the reality of our need? But even more, would you open our eyes to see Jesus, the one who perfectly meets our every need? It's in his name we ask. Amen. What makes you clean? Or rather, what makes you unclean? This is the question that Jesus addressed last week in Mark 7, 1 through 23. And it's essentially this, like, what makes you right before God? Last week we saw Jesus take this question, this assessment head on. And and the Pharisees, they were concerned about really the, the washing of hands. They were concerned about cleanliness. And Jesus says to them, with a sharp tongue, wow, what an understanding you have. What an understanding way that you have gained in rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your own commandments. He's saying, wait, hold up. You guys miss this altogether. The commandments aren't in place just to show you just to stop you, rather, from what you're doing or to just hold you to do the right things. They're not there to give you a leg up on those that you want to look down upon. The commandments are in place to magnify the reality that you are unclean. And then Jesus drives this point home. He appeals to their diets, right? He says, hey, it's not what you eat that defiles you, what makes you unclean. It's not that which goes into you, it's that which comes out of you. It's the manifestation of your wretched heart. It's what makes you unclean. Because your heart is the thing that's unclean. And we say this all the time here at Free City, that we exist as a church to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of who? Man, past it. Ultimately, what we say, and we typically couple it with something like this, that, man, Jesus changes everything. He calls us out of the sin that we have naturally situated ourselves in, and he comes toward us with great compassion when we're despondent, when we're filled with shame. He raises us up and he liberates us. Jesus transforms the deepest part of us and then he leads us by a spirit in his mission. He redefines everything because Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the promised one of old, the son of the living God. And this is what Mark tells us from the onset of the Gospel of Mark. 
And last week, as we addressed, as Jesus addressed the self-righteous Pharisees, and he rebuked them for their so-called gospel of, say, sanitization of sorts, the clean and the unclean, today we see him actually approach those who are unclean, who even the, the Pharisees would have agreed with are unclean, as to portray the application of his word last week. And so as we get into today's text, we're going to go with just one main idea, and this is just going from the very last words of this section, straight from the text. Jesus does all things well. He perfectly meets and perceives our needs. He precisely rebukes our ideologies at the root of them. He, in great compassion, reaches into the hearts of individuals. He speaks to and actually brings healing to shame, not some kind of momentary, step-by-step, self-help garbage. He draws about conviction in a way that's undeniable, and individuals are left with no way out than to just admit reality, throw themselves upon him, and depend upon his goodness. Jesus does all things well. So this evening, as we drive this idea, we're going to break the text down into really two points, where we're looking at the text in two sections. And one, because Jesus does all things well, section one will be verses 24 through 30. It's a Syrophoenician woman. And Jesus, because he does all things well, point one is, he enables us to be honest about who we are. This is core identity. And two... Verses 31 through 37, Jesus, because he does all things well, enables us to be honest about our need. So Jesus does all things well, and Mark wants us to realize who he is and encounter him for who he is. It's our most fundamental need. So let's get to it. Jesus enables us to be honest about who we are. Look at Mark 7, verse 20. Four. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he couldn't be hidden. There's a couple, like, kind of contextual details that we need here. The last time that we see Mark mention Jesus' location is the, at the end of chapter 6. It's when he heals the sick in Gennesaret. And I think an additional thing to highlight is that in the midst of this, in chapter 6, Jesus is gaining fame, like the good kind. He also had opposition that he's perhaps getting away from. But in, in Mark 6, we see that 6, 54 and 56, it says, And when they got out of the boat, so Jesus with the people, with the disciples, the people immediately, there's that word, they recognized him. And they ran about the whole region. They began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages and cities or the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. So Jesus goes into the, into the region of Tyre. This is present-day Lebanon, if you're familiar with geography. In an effort to rest, verse 24 says that he entered this house. He didn't want anyone to know where he was. So he exits the Jewish provinces, 
and he heads into Gentile territory. And as he's settling into the Airbnb or whatever of sorts, the door flings open, right? Look at verse 25. But immediately, there's that word again. Mark says this so many times. Keep us moving, the urgency of it. Immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Well, there's a couple things that are probably pretty quickly lost on us in hearing this at face value. First, Jesus, I just mentioned this, he is now in Gentile territory. The Messiah, this would have been a bit perplexing, because the Messiah was said to come to the Jews, not the Gentiles. So it's interesting that this woman, first of all, that she is a Gentile, that she would even care who Jesus is. And more than that, from a a Jewish perspective, this woman has the cards completely stacked against her. James Edwards, in his commentary on Mark, when he's talking about verse 26, he says, verse 26 reads like a, a crescendo of demerit, if you think about that. So there's a few things. This woman is first that. She's a woman. In this time, it would absolutely be inappropriate for her to approach a man, let alone a Jewish man. Also, she's a Greek Gentile from the infamous pagans of Syrian Phoenicia. And if that's not enough, Mark references, again, the comparison of the clean versus unclean by stating that she has a daughter who has an unclean spirit. Speaking of demonic oppression, you want to talk about clean and unclean, this is it, right? Her lack of right standing, it goes beyond the cultural norms. It's not just her gender or ethnicity. It's not just who she is or where she's come from that establishes these these marks against her. It's her very offspring. This woman's credentials from A to Z, they're all wrong, but that doesn't stop her. Look at the end of verse 25 and into 26. It says that she, she came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. A better way for us to read this would be something like, she fell down at his feet and she kept on begging. The same story is recorded in Matthew's gospel in chapter 15, 21 through 28. And there we see a a bit more of her persistence. She actually is annoying the disciples. Matthew in chapter 15, verse 23 says, And his disciples came and begged him. So she's begging. They come. They beg Jesus. Hey, send her away. For she's crying out after us. They're saying, man... This woman is relentless in her approach. But this woman, though uninvited and unwelcome in every social regard, she cries out to Jesus. She says, Oh Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. I need you to heal my daughter. There's an urgency in what she feels. We see her heart on display, and her need is evident as she becomes the very application, the building block of Mark 7, 19 from last week, where Jesus declares all foods clean, 
If foods are not unclean, perhaps people are not either. So what's Jesus' response to her? Look at verse 27. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. Note that. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Do you catch what he's saying here? It might be a bit confusing. It's not necessarily a subtlety, although it might be a bit hidden. It seems that Jesus is straight up insinuating that this woman is a dog. This would definitely rank among one of the most offensive lines that we hear from Jesus. But then we're kind of left with the question, like, why does he do this to this woman? She, it seems out of, out of character for him, for sure, but mainly because this woman is contrasted from the Pharisees. Like, she actually seems to be concerned with him rather than the laws and commands of his father, like the Pharisees were. Historically, he's offended the Pharisees, right? Because they didn't care about him. But also in this day, dogs would have been an absolutely uh, despicable thing. They would have completely been associated with uncleanliness. Dogs in this day roamed the streets. They ate scraps and garbage, whatever they could find. So to term someone a dog, it's not a compliment. I don't know that it's a compliment now, though, right? (laughs) But it would be a contemptuous metaphor. It would be one that would often be applied from Jews, God's people, right? Applied from them to the godless pagan Gentiles, such as this very woman. So when speaking of dogs, we're not talking your grandma's lap dog. We're not talking about the doofus poodles that live under my roof. Maybe more of the picture is like the beast from Sandlot, you know, locked up in Mr. Myrtle's backyard because he like ate humans. (laughs) Isn't that the story? Or like uh, Cousin Eddie's dog, Snots, over there yakking on a bone. (laughs) Filthy mongrels, right? <laughs> this is the Bahaman. Get back, scruffy. Back, fluffy. Get back, you flea-infested mongrel. <laughs> but there's something more here. If we look even just a bit closer, what we see is Jesus is actually providing a parable. A parable is just a, a short, simple story that's meant to communicate a, a spiritual truth. It literally means to cast alongside. If you're here a couple years back, we actually did a sermon series on some of the parables of Jesus. And each week we would talk about how the parables, though with a, a bit of mystery to them, how in their simplicity they would communicate uh, uh, teaching in story form. They had a purpose. And the purpose was really to provoke um, one of two responses to either confound those who uh, are closed off to their teaching or to awaken those who are tuned into their narrative. So what we see here is that this woman, this mother, she hears what Jesus says, and she seems to actually get something. It it seems, if if you look at her posture, it awakens something in her. Like when he says, you're a dog, she doesn't just close down, right? There's also another thing. Jesus uses a couple metaphors in this parable. 
He speaks of children and of dogs. And it seems there's a meal involved. But the importance of the description is who are the children and who are the dogs. And so we need to remember where is Jesus? He's in Gentile territory, right? It's entire. And so, like I've said, it would be no surprise for a Jewish individual to say, man, there's Gentiles, there's pagans, they're dogs. So that would have been heard and, and understood quite loudly. But then the children part, this would be Israel, right? For they're the children of God, the ones for whom the law was given and the promises of God were given. So as they look at the Old Testament, I mean, this is the Pharisees thing. Hey, this is our, our deal. This is the news for us, right? And they begin to define their own rules. So this would be Israel and the Gentiles. So we would need to hear the offense of this message. You're a dog. But also, in the midst of the parable, Jesus says, let the children be fed first. So there's some sense of an order to things here. The woman, when she hears Jesus speak, she's not quieted. Jesus seems to refer to her as a dog, but what's crazy here is that she, situated as the one on the receiving end of this remark, she doesn't contend. Instead, the woman seems to understand what's kind of beneath the surface of what Jesus is saying, the fullness of the picture, maybe a loophole of sorts or an invitation, if you will. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, you're a dog. But she answers him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So as Jesus brings this contemptuous saying to her, a name-calling of sorts, note that she starts no revolution to out the Christ as a misogynistic pig. She doesn't, you know, there's no media to take it to, and, and Twitter's not a thing, but we're not even, like, by her posture, we don't even think that she would waste 140 characters to try to explain anything. What does she do? No defense. Her, I think her reaction's completely unexpected, honestly. Completely antithetical to what we experience or how we respond in present day when accused of something. Jesus says, you're a dog. Get in line. And she says, yeah, you're right. She agrees with him. Yes, I'm a dog. You're right. You're right, Jesus. I'm the despicable. I'm the unclean. I'm completely unworthy. But she doesn't just stop there. This doesn't devolve into some kind of weird self-pity. Look at the second half of verse 28. She answered him. She says, yes, Lord. But then she contends. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She says, Lord, I may be a dog, but you and I both know that even the dogs get a meal. What she's doing here is acknowledging her state. She acknowledges who she is, her identity, and her need. She puts up no fight and honestly recognizes who she is, and then she appeals to Jesus. That's this kind of humble contention that she has. In every regard, she has no case for herself 
for she just admitted and accepted his words. But listen to this. It seems that in the realization of who she is, what's also at play here is an awareness of who she's talking to, who Jesus is. And notice, as she appeals to Jesus, she doesn't do so on the basis of her status or who, what she's accomplished. She hasn't, because she has nothing to claim. She realizes she has no grounds, but it seems that she simply appeals to Jesus on the basis of his goodness. And that's the point here. He does all things well. He leads her to see her need and depend on him. Jesus enables her to be honest about who she really is. He offers a parable. She hears it and receives the conviction and receives the invitation. But there's another thing at play here, too. I mentioned this earlier, talking about it goes to the children and the dogs, Jews and Gentiles. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So in the midst of this, he explains there's an order. There's a mission at play. Jews, then Gentiles, not a devaluing of humanity because the same message comes to both. It's the purpose of the kingdom of God in the order. Jesus, he's not writing his own script. This is the one that he and the Father and the Spirit came up with before the foundations of the world. He's not making it up as he goes. In order to fulfill the law and prophets, the Messiah had to come to the Jews first because they're the ones who had the law. Apostle Paul understood this, and he penned Romans 1, 16 and 17, where he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, then also to the Greek, the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And saying, yes, Lord, even the dogs, though, they, under the table, they still get a meal. The Syrophoenician woman is requesting a foretaste of what Paul writes about in Romans 1. Then look at verse 29. Jesus then responds to her. He says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and she found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Jumping back into Matthew 15 and verse 28, Jesus actually says to her at this point, he says, Oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. She humbly and courageously accepts the reality of who she is. And it's only from this point of sobriety that she's able to comprehend the parabolic mystery of the kingdom of God. How do you think you would have responded in this situation? Or perhaps, like, 
How do you respond when put in this situation? And here's what I mean. In, in the life of our church, this is a story that regularly is recounted over and over through many of you that I talk with. It's one that I live as well. You see, to some degree or another, we, we all have a, a baseline kind of feel or understanding for that which we need, that we actually have need. We mention this all the time here at Free City. We have a, a suspicion that something within us is messed up, and maybe we actually have a finger to point and to pin our problems to, or a finger to point at someone to pin our problems to. But to some degree, we're all aware that there's something deeper than that. There's a discrepancy within what we do when we come face to face with this reality, though, is altogether different. Lately in, in my city group, we've had a lot of discussions about kind of the great foothold in the Christian life. It's pride, right? You ever, you ever like, maybe this is you, you get to a point where you start to realize, man, I do lots of selfish stuff. And then you start to, in sense of vulnerability, you're like, man, I'm just really proud. You ever do that? Anyone ever done that? And then you realize, man, there's actually something deeper below that that makes you proud. And so pride is like kind of this entangling thing. I don't know. We'll get there later. <laughs> but what it is is this. We've been talking about pride, and specifically we've been talking about self-pity. Self-pity as the flip side of pride to boasting. If boasting is the pride of the successful, then self-pity is the pride of the sufferer. John Piper, in his book, Desiring God, actually helps us kind of understand this a bit. So I'm going to quote this. It's not on the screen, so just open your ears, listen to it. He says this, Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I've achieved so much. We know this to varying degrees. Like, you got the humble brag friend, right? But self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I have sacrificed so much. Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong. Self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. Boasting sounds self-sufficient. Self-pity sounds self-sacrificing. The reason self-pity does not look like pride is that it appears, appears to be needy. But the need arises from a wounded ego. And the desire of self-pitying is not really for others to see them as helpless, but as heroes. The need self-pity feels does not come from a sense of unworthiness, but a sense of unrecognized worthiness. It's the response of unapplauded pride. How do you respond when you find yourself in situations like the woman of Mark 7, when you read the word of God and it says something about you or it asks something of you that you don't like, what do you do? Do you stiff arm it? Push it away? Do you culturally appropriate it as it no longer has any bearing on your life or any demand on you because that was a different time, a different place, a different people? You realize that if we do that, all the while, 
We take the God of the Bible and make a God of our own making because we cut out the parts of God that we don't like. Friends, a a God who never, ever disagrees with you is a God of your own making. And so when you come up against things in the Bible that rub you wrong, that you got like this kind of person saying, whoa, wait a second, within you. I'm not telling you to just shut your mouth, put your head down and submit. But we, we have to process that out. Who am I? What do I feel? Offer that before God and then ask upon his goodness. I'm saying come to Jesus. Take him at his word. See that he is in fact the one who does all things well. Humbling, accept your deepest reality, the one that's at the core of who you are. Open your hands, receive what he has to say about you, and it's only then that through him you receive a new identity, the identity that he gives. The gospel message is this. Tim Keller says this. We mention this often. You're more sinful and flawed than you'd ever dare believe. Yet at the same time, you're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hoped. Jesus enables us to be honest about who we really are. He does all things well. And that presents our need. So let's talk about that. Part two, Jesus enables us to be honest about our need. So look at verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre, He went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. If you're aware of the geography of this region, then this would make sense to you, but for the rest of us, let me clarify. (laughs) Jesus has been in Tyre and Sidon. Now he's going to Decapolis. All of this is Gentile territory. A present-day kind of explanation would be like, if you're looking at Sea of Galilee, it's here, and then we would have Tyre and Sidon up here, and then back around here, is the Decapolis. So it seems to say that he goes here to here to here. It's like saying, I'm going to go from Lawrence to Topeka, but the way I'm going to get there is to go to Kansas City, then Platte City, and then to Topeka. doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Unless you're kind of trying to get away, trying to get rest, because the last time you're trying to get rest, a woman comes and busts down the door and says, would you heal my daughter, right? Keep going. Verse 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf. And the man had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. So here, apparently, the words out about Jesus as well. Remember at the beginning, Jesus was healing people in droves in Gennesaret, chapter 6. And we've seen in other places, like Mark 5, that we covered a few weeks back, when Jesus, like, he heals the woman when she just reached out and touched his cloak. Then look at verse 33. His people bring this man to him, and then Jesus, taking him aside from the crowd privately, he puts his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, the fafta, that is, be open. So we see a series of actions take place here. I would bet there's like been people who interpret verse 32 as kind of step-by-step of healing the deaf mute for dummies, some kind of book, pamphlet established. But if we stop and we consider what's happening here, we would see the purpose, so let's do that. 
Jesus, he doesn't need a, a waving of a wand. He's not a wizard. He's not Dumbledore. We just saw him three or four verses back heal someone and, and free this uh, child from a demonic spirit. And he never even went and touched her. He just spoke it and happened. So he doesn't need that. His words are enough. His thoughts are enough. So why does he do the kind of weird reverse wet willy thing? He takes the steps listed in verse 33, not because he needed to, but because the man needed him to. What Jesus does is he points to the man's ears as he touches his tongue. It's a signal of Christ getting down on the man's level. He steps into the man's world, and in his great compassion, he communicates with the man in a way that he can understand. Think about this. If you're deaf, what do you do? You use sign language, right? So maybe that's what Jesus is doing, is communicating with him. <laughs> but why? Doesn't the man just need to be able to speak and hear? That's true, in part, but his need goes beyond that. Consider what it would have been like in this day to be deaf. This is before cochlear implants, before you could carry around even a smartphone and type it in and let Siri speak for you. The deaf in this day were outcasts, the mocked. They were the needy, the ritually unclean. So it wasn't just that this man's were inhibited from sound and his tongue was tied up. He would have been filled with shame. Years of constant mocking. But think about it, like, mocking would be visible, right? If you're deaf, you can't hear it, but you can see the scoffer in front of you. To be blind at this time, it would have been one thing, like, you could hear mockers, right? But you can't see what they're doing. But with this man, with no ability to hear, but wide open eyes, he would have seen the manifestation of shame dealing from passersby pointing, the laughing, the jeering, the mocking. But while lips were moving from the scoffers, he would have no ability to interpret their message because he can't hear. So there, he's only left for his thoughts, his imagination, if you will, to fill in the condemning message. So yes, the plugged ears and tied tongue, definitely a problem but what do you make of the soul of a man in this predicament? I don't think it's a stretch to say that shame that he felt would have been off the charts. The reality of his flaws and his innate feeling of unworthiness to receive love or feel like he's belong would have been profound. And what does Jesus do? Look again at the beginning of verse 33. He says, and taking him aside from the crowd privately. Now, don't overlook these eight words. Or we'll only see a man, if we, if we overlook the privately, then we'll overlook this and we'll just see a man go from unhearing to hearing in a moment. But Jesus pulls the man aside, the outcast, the unclean, the unworthy man. He pulls him aside, fixes his eyes on him, but this is a new experience for the man. Jesus looks at this man with a stare unfamiliar to the man, if you think about it. Accustomed to seeing the eyes of contempt, now this man sees the eyes of compassion, 
locked on him. The first notion, pulling him aside from the crowd, Jesus signals to him, I'm not interested in simply appeasing your visible need or that which I'm readily aware of. I want to I come at your deepest need. And I have to believe that in this one-on-one moment, the man came face-to-face with his felt need in a way that for the first time, that need wasn't used to deepen a wound within him. But rather, his need was identified because that need was necessary to be identified in order to bring about his healing. It had to be named. So do you realize this? Jesus could have healed him physically. But his problem wasn't just physical. How often do we forgo the work of acknowledging or digging up our deepest need to settle for moments, momentary relief? Doesn't Jesus do this well? He gets on the man's level. He honestly addresses the man's need, pulls him aside privately. And then look at verse 34. And looking up to heaven... He sighed, and he said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be open. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. I want to point out the second thing that Jesus does in verse 34. He sighs. We've had a sign language so that the man knows what Jesus is about to do. He looks up to heaven, and then he sighs, perhaps identifying with the man before he speaks. But also here, there's another kind of hidden flag planted in the sand. When Mark references the man's speech impediment in chapter 7, he uses a word to describe the speech impediment that's only used one other time in all the Bible. It's back in Isaiah 35. So Mark, keenly aware of his word choice, draws our eyes out to see the larger story at play. He calls our attention back to the promises of God. Isaiah 35, I believe it's on the screen. It says this, verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. We see that here. The lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. We see that here. Is this not what's happening in Mark, right? But moreover, Isaiah prophesies not of a single alleviation of circumstantial problems. He speaks of a promise, one that's to come, and it's an entirely new kingdom to be ushered in. But how? How does all this happen? He says, behold, your God will come with vengeance. And this is the source of the sigh in Mark 7, 34. As Jesus entered into the deaf man's world, as he got down on his level, he completely, in every sense of the word, identified with the man. And for the most part, the man understood what he was doing. His ears, his tongue, healed in a moment, probably felt the shame lift. But the sigh was an acknowledgement of what it would cost for Jesus to usher in this new kingdom, for the healings to happen. 
Jesus would be the one to unstop the ears of the deaf and loosen the tongue of the mute, but he would not be able to administer these things without receiving, absorbing the vengeance of God. There'd be no happenstance or haphazard approach to Jesus stepping into the deaf man's world. With wide eyes and a merciful heart, the Savior counted the cost. He knew that he had the power to completely turn the man's world upside down in the most unbelievably beautiful way. But he also knew that he had to give, in order to give this man everything, it would cost Jesus everything. And with a sigh, he embraces the vengeance of God so that the deaf mute man might sing the song of joy. Jesus does all things well. And so just as Jesus met the Syrophoenician woman and the deaf woman, he meets us. He comes to us in our specific needs, our uncleanliness, and in a perfect marriage of conviction and compassion, he offers us liberation from our bondage. For the woman, he brings a sense of conviction. He enables her to be honest about who she is in order to receive the blessing and identify with who Jesus is, to receive his identity. And for the man, Jesus compassionately pulls him aside. He lifts him up out of his shame as he speaks miraculously healing over him. In closing, look at verse 36. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged him, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So why does Jesus gag order the crowd? I think it has to do with him warning them, like wanting them to not get lost in the signs and wonders. Think about how crazy it would be. You just saw a dude healed that you've walked past thousands of times, sits on the side of the street, but in a moment... His hearing and ability to speak clearly come to him. Now he can speak. There'd be a huge temptation to get hung up in the miracle that you just saw happen and miss the miracle worker. Jesus approached both of these individuals, the Syrophoenician woman, the man, differently. Yet it was exactly what they needed in order to see their need, to see his holiness, to see who he really was. So how do you need to experience Jesus? If you were to view yourself inside of this story, how do you think Jesus would come to you? It's this kindness that leads us to honest repentance, to truly accept who we are in order to receive who he is. And it's his compassion that draws us up out of shame, speaks to our deepest needs, and then gives us, empowers us with zeal for his namesake. Each week, we come to communion. And it's here that we recognize what it took for us to have a relationship with God. That Christ took the vengeance of God to open our deaf ears to hear the gospel, to loosen our tongues, to be able to proclaim, Jesus does all things well. You see... Just as Jesus identified with the shame of the deaf man in the story, 
He did it for you in entirety as he went to the cross. He became the unclean of the unclean, cut off from God so that we could be washed white as snow by his blood. Jesus became the dog so that we might become welcomed in as the children of God. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I do ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to awaken our hearts, to awaken our hearts to the reality of who we are and who you are, that we would see the the huge chasm of our need, that we would see your glory and your mercy and that we would receive it. So would you convict us of who we are, our identity, where we've maybe placed that tonight? And in naming it, in agreeing with you, would we receive the identity that you give us through the cross, through your resurrection? And Jesus, if there are those despondent in this room, just beat down and overwhelmed, would you do like you did to the deaf man? Would you pull us aside privately, look at us, and speak over us? Perhaps quiet us by your love, as Zephaniah 3 says, so that we might together Realize the song of exaltation that you sing over us and that we might join in it saying, Jesus, you do all things well. So move among us, Holy Spirit. Wake in our hearts. Amen.